The sermon text today is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you who hear and see and know the deep parts of our souls, calm our racing minds and our fearful hearts, that we might hear you rightly, see you clearly, and know the deep parts of your love for us, and there find rest. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Do not be anxious. We live in a world that seems to conspire to make that all but impossible. Product marketers create commercial campaigns to stimulate anxiety about your current self and then offer a solution to that anxiety through purchase and consumption in a never-ending cycle. Social media presents us with a million digitally manicured lives. It alerts us to all the joys other people are experiencing that we're missing out on, makes every one of our words and photographs subject to the unpredictable approval or disapproval of the masses, and the algorithm is designed to hook you right in the soul and keep you coming back for more. The 24-7 news cycle won't let you forget everything that's devastating and grievous and wrong in the world. It's too much for any single soul to bear. And our expanding knowledge only expands our burden, our fear, our deep sense of instability and lack of control. New technologies give us the power to be more efficient than anyone in history, and they promise to make our lives easier. But inevitably, what happens is that our ability to accomplish more faster only raises the bar of expectation and multiplies the demands that other people place on us and that we place upon ourselves. Why? Because more efficiency yields more expectations 
yields more ways to potentially fall short. At the same time, developments in health data tracking, medical intervention, instant communication, and video surveillance, much of which can happen right through your cell phone, have given us a safety, a control over our lives previously unimaginable, but that illusion of control only deepens our angst over the parts of life we can't master. And it intensifies our panic when an uncontrollable world proves to us that we were never really in control in the first place. No wonder we're all anxious. Anxiety is a universal human tendency, but the structure of life in our society only exacerbates what is already all too natural. But Jesus says, do not be anxious. Now let me ask you, how do you hear those words? In your mind, what tone of voice do you hear Jesus using when he says, do not be anxious? Impatience, frustration, Disappointment, condemnation, unmet expectation. That's how I tend to hear it. I think that's how a lot of people, perhaps especially Christians, tend to hear Jesus. Pointing out just one more way that you're failing. Which leaves you anxious about your anxiety on top of the anxieties that were already there. But consider. Of all the things that the God of the cosmos could have talked about. Right in the middle of his most famous sermon. Right in the middle of the sermon that would be recited and read down through the ages. He chose to talk about the everyday fears that are plaguing your heart. If he had said nothing about our anxiety, we would just assume that he doesn't care and that we're all alone in our plight. But he talks about it because he wants us to know that we're not alone and he loves us enough to help. The good shepherd who promises you that he's gentle and lowly in heart isn't demonizing your anxiety. He's recognizing that it exists and that it matters. And he's drawing you into the place where you can finally find some relief. When you hear Jesus say, do not be anxious, hear it not as a condemnation of where you are, but as an invitation into something better and richer and fuller. So as we listen to the Lord, I want us to pay attention to four things about anxiety. Four things. The state, the symptoms, the source, and the salve. First, the state of anxiety. Anxiety is one of those things that you know what it is, what it feels like, what it does to you, even if you can't put it into words, right? But Jesus helps us pinpoint that anxiety, in the most basic sense, is fear about the future. It's agony over the unknown. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What about our life? What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Anxiety lives in the future tense, doesn't it? It makes its home in the hypothetical world of possibilities. What could happen? What might happen? Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow because anxiety ultimately is today's fear over tomorrow's infinite potentials. Jesus 
isn't teaching you not to make plans. Let's be clear, setting goals, foreseeing obstacles, making preparations, those are all elements of real biblical wisdom. And he's not teaching that the world isn't a scary place. The world is scary. On his way to the cross, Jesus is going to come face to face with just how scary the world can really be. And he promises that you, if you take up your cross and follow him, you're going to experience that too. We need to acknowledge the fearful precarity of life, respond to the reasonable dangers with proactive wisdom, and in the process, entrust our fears and our very selves into the hands of God. But that's not what anxiety does. Anxiety stays rooted in the fear. It fixates on what we don't yet know and panics over our prediction in advance. It focuses on what hasn't yet transpired and gets a head start on trying to manage all the ways it could turn out. We might say that anxiety is a disorder of the imagination. It takes the gift that God has given us to imagine possible outcomes. And it bends it in fear so that we stay trapped in a cycling, irresolvable, negative vision of what might be. Now, anxiety can take a variety of forms. I think we know that all too well, don't we? Sometimes our anxious state is honed in on a very particular identifiable issue. An upcoming exam, a looming mortgage payment, a social event, an uncomfortable conversation where you're left not knowing what the other person is thinking or saying about you or how they're going to respond the next time you see them. Sometimes anxiety manifests as a low-grade, non-specific, simmering fear with no easily discernible cause. It's a threat response that you feel and carry in your body, but for the life of you, you can't trace it back to any single source. You don't know why you're anxious, you just are. For some, anxiety is mostly situational. It comes and goes with changing circumstances, while others may know manageable levels of anxiety as a much more regular part of their life and even their disposition. And sometimes, anxiety transcends those common expressions and presents as a chronic, intrusive, even debilitating experience. Some of you have been through that valley of the shadow of death, and some of you are right in the middle of it right now. So let's be clear from the outset, shall we? There are besetting breeds of anxiety that can be connected to past experiences of trauma and the wounds we carry, to hormonal imbalances, to diagnosable mental illness, to all sorts of other adverse conditions we may carry with us. And those types of anxiety require wise, well-trained, professional intervention. There are times when a wounded body needs the attention of a skilled doctor. You don't first run to a theologian to set your broken bone. And sometimes a wounded mind needs a doctor too. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is primarily speaking to the common expressions of anxiety that everyone experiences. What does he talk about? Food, drink, clothing. These are the universal points of worry. 
What he teaches here certainly speaks to the whole wide range of our anxious fears. But hear me, nothing that he says and nothing that I will say precludes the children of God from seeking out wise therapists and medical clinicians when atypical forms of anxiety break through into your life as a chronic, suffocating, all-consuming, unescapable, even life-threatening reality. If you need that kind of help, dear ones, ask for help. We have to be the kind of community that is ready to listen and respond. Jesus does not want his sheep suffering in shame and in silence. So with that important exhortation in view, let's consider second the symptoms of anxiety. Sometimes the normalcy of our anxiety can lead us to not really take it seriously. We develop these techniques for living with it, managing it, suppressing its most egregious effects. But if we look closely, we'll discover that anxiety has the power to touch nearly every part of who we are. How so? Anxiety will tighten your grip. Notice that verse 25 here begins with, Therefore, Jesus has been calling us to lay up our treasure in heaven, not on earth, to live in generosity, to reject money as our master. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Now, what's the connection there? Jesus knows that your hand will not open in generosity until your anxious compulsion to control your life has been rooted out of your heart. You see, anxiety tightens our grip. It tells us we need to clench every type of resource we have. Money, time, labor, social capital, reputation, emotional energy. Why? Because those resources are our only protection against an unforeseen future. Anxiety will dull your hearing. What I mean is that anxiety causes us to hear everything through the filter of our fears. Maybe you heard the Sermon on the Mount through the filter of your fears. So instead of hearing clearly, we tend to hear everything as a confirmation of what we're already afraid of. So the person anxious for social acceptance can have the most amazing conversation with a friend. But then inevitably, what happens? They start replaying the conversation in their head, don't they? What was that tone about? What did that phrase mean? Why did they make that facial expression when I mentioned that one particular thing? And they'll end up convincing themselves that what they really heard was rejection, displeasure, disapproval underneath it all. Whatever we happen to be anxious about, our anxiety has a remarkable capacity to shape the way we interpret how everyone around us is relating to us. Anxiety will dim your eyes. When you look at your life, you won't be able to evaluate your circumstances properly. The anxiety that filters our hearing shades our vision so that we can't see our blessings. We're blind to the genuine abundance of God's provision, and consequently, we're devoid of gratitude. And instead, all we can see is what's lacking, what's missing, what could go wrong, what could be lost. 
Anxiety makes every single one of us terrible judges of our true condition. We'll tend to see ourselves as more desperate, more deprived, more alone than we really are because that anxiety blocks our sight of the gifts that are right underneath our nose. Anxiety will diminish your presence. What do I mean? When you're consumed with tomorrow, you cannot truly show up in the today. Do you know what I mean? When all your attention is directed toward the unknown, you've got no mental space, emotional stamina. You've got no physical energy or creativity left for the real people and the real tasks that are right in front of you. You'll be physically present without being truly present. You'll be a shadow of your true self who's unable to fully offer yourself in love to what's before you because you're constantly living in a hypothetical reality of your imagination. Anxiety will ruin your treasure. It'll ruin your treasure. Jesus asked, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Anxiety can't add to your lifespan, friends, but what can it do? It can certainly subtract from it, right? Just go look up the effects of long-term cortisol exposure, stress hormone production on the human body. Our anatomy can't take it. And that's the irony of anxiety for all of us. It ruins the very treasures we're anxious about. If you're anxious over your children's safety, you'll tend to overprotect them such that they don't develop amid adversity the skills and strengths they need to truly thrive in the world, and they'll be less resilient and more in danger as a result. If you're anxious about the quality or reception of your work, every little detail of your labor will begin to carry such existential weight that you'll constantly second-guess yourself micromanage trivial details, and never allow yourself to release your skills in freedom and joy in the ways necessary to truly work and serve others at your highest potential. If you're anxious about what people are thinking always in your relationships, your interactions are going to be stilted. Other people are going to be able to sense that you are toiling to control what they're thinking. You are laboring to manage their perceptions of you. And what will that do? It'll actually introduce issues in your relationships that wouldn't even have been there if you'd showed up with secure vulnerability. Jesus tells us that our anxiety is ineffective, but even worse than ineffective, it's detrimental to all the things we value most. It ruins our treasures. We can keep going. Anxiety will multiply your conflict because you don't have the patience to bear with any other problems when your mind is lost in worry. It'll fight your finitude because you'll work yourself to the bone and sacrifice sleep and adopt totally inhumane rhythms and push against your creaturely limitations in a futile attempt to assert control over what you really know is uncontrollable. It'll hamper your holiness because the pressure of anxiety always needs a release valve. 
and you will indulge some idolatrous form of self-medication to dull the internal chaos and feel better if only for a moment. Whether it's gluttony of food or drink, outbursts of anger, pornography and sexual fantasy, a little bit of retail therapy, or some other balm for your soul. And anxiety will distort your doctrine, too. Wrong beliefs about God can certainly give rise to anxiety, but in the complexity of the human heart, it can run the other way as well. Your anxiety can subtly lead you into a false vision of God's character and his concern for you. It makes it easier to functionally believe the lies, even if your theology is perfect on paper. When we're anxious, what do we typically feel? We feel isolated and deprived. And if we stay there long enough, we'll begin to assume that our feelings are our reality. Maybe God isn't really as good as he says. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't notice. Maybe he doesn't want me to be happy. Maybe he doesn't even love me. After all, maybe God has actually abandoned me. It doesn't take long for an anxious heart to walk down that path, does it? So let's get to the heart of it, shall we? Third, we need to see the source of anxiety. Jesus doesn't waste any time getting to the crux of the matter. His first question goes straight to the source of our anxiety. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? Isn't life more? Jesus doesn't address our anxiety problems by telling us we're asking for too much. He's inviting us to see that we are settling for too little. For all the symptoms of anxiety that we can identify, anxiety itself is ultimately a symptom of a heart that's searching for life, for rest, fullness, security, joy, in things that are too fragile and too frail to really provide it. Human beings, you and I, were created to have our deepest existential needs for belonging, security, purpose, meaning, wholeness, the truly abundant life in the presence, beauty, and love of an eternal, infinite God. But rather than finding our life hidden and safe in God, we spend our whole lives trying to manufacture the life that God offers without God himself. By hooking our hearts to some lesser thing and convincing ourselves that if we could just get it, we would finally be full. And when that happens, all our effort and energy and attention gets channeled onto the thing, with a capital T, the thing, striving to acquire it, worrying we won't get it, scrambling to ensure we don't lose it, fearing that it could be taken, despairing that no matter how much of it we've gained, we don't yet have enough to experience the rest we're searching for. If you're looking for life in other people's approval, you will be perpetually racked with anxiety about what's going on in their hearts and minds. 
No assurance of your standing with others will ever be enough to calm the storm in your soul, and you will compulsively seek out fresh confirmations that they love and accept you. But friend, isn't life more? True life is more than other people's approval, and that's why you'll never find it there. If you're searching for life in safety, in your ability to block out every conceivable threat to you and your family, your imagination will be full of all the fearful things that might befall you. No amount of control and curation of your environment will ever set you at peace because there's always another threat on the horizon and because deep down you know that you don't have the power to control reality and fight off death forever. But isn't life more? True life is more than the safety of control, and that's why you'll never find it there. When we're anxious, we need to learn how to follow the thread of our anxiety all the way to its source in the heart. Because our persistent fears will reveal to us the capital T thing. The thing we've tried to make the source of life. The thing we desperately believe we need. The thing we're terrified to be without. And ultimately, the thing about which you and I have to ask, is not life more? And the answer, of course, is yes. Life is more. So let's finally look at the salve for our anxiety. It's appropriate to think of the way that Jesus heals our anxiety as a salve because it's a long-term process, not a one-time procedure. For a salve to have its proper effect, it's got to be reapplied to the skin over and over. And you and I can only combat our anxiety by reapplying Jesus's promises over and over to our wounded hearts. Now, I want you to notice for a moment how Jesus goes about approaching anxious people. Before we get into the content, look at his method. He doesn't just quickly contradict your anxiety by saying it's irrational and silly. That never helps when anyone is spiraling anyway. And he doesn't immediately try to resolve your anxiety by telling you what right beliefs need to replace your wrong ones. It's not as if we can flip a switch on our anxiety even if we try. When you respond to other people's anxiety, in those ways, it's often because you're living out of your own anxiety and trying to control theirs. No, Jesus doesn't jump to contradicting or resolving the anxiety. What does he do? He questions it. He engages our hearts in conversation. It's interesting. If you look through the ethical instruction of, of the Sermon on the Mount, this section on anxiety is easily the longest of all. In a sermon of quick-hitting, pithy teaching, Jesus takes a remarkable amount of time to ask questions and involve us in the process of discovery right here. 
He patiently coaxes our hearts into doing the hard and necessary work of discerning what's really going on underneath and then journeying with him step by little step out of the prison of our anxiety and into the reality of God. When we are anxious or when we're trying to help someone else who's anxious, we would do well to slow down and learn from Jesus, his patient questions. He shepherds the heart. He doesn't bludgeon it. And where does he lead us? He takes us right into the eternal character of God. Jesus leads us to God's power. In all your anxiety, you're powerless to add a single second to your life. You don't have the kind of control that you want to think you do. But God is able to feed, clothe, and care for every square inch of his entire creation with meticulous, unswerving precision. Jesus leads us to God's prodigality, his extravagance. God doesn't just meet the barest needs of his creation. He has filled his world with unnecessary, completely uncalled for bounties of beauty. He's clothed the flowers and the grass that'll be gone in the blink of an eye with a splendor that the greatest artists and artisans in all of human history have only reached for and dreamed of replicating. Jesus leads us to God's passion, his love. Are you not of more value than they? It's not merely that God is powerful and prodigal. It's that the powerful prodigal God has set his sights, his concern, his affection, his delight, his love on you. In Israel, the poorest of the poor couldn't afford to offer a bull or a goat or a lamb as a sacrifice when they came before God's face in worship. So do you know what God said that they could offer instead? Birds. When the poor sacrificed their birds as a little comparatively meager offering to God. They were symbolically offering their entire selves in worship. For vulnerable Israelites, the birds were a living picture of them. Throughout the Bible, God also describes his people as a garden. The Lord plants his children in his presence so that they can sink roots, spring up, bear fruit, and flourish with all the glory of Eden in the streams of his grace and the light of his face. God created the flowers and the grass in part, church, to give you a living picture of the garden that he created you to be. So let me ask you. If God so cares for the birds and for the flowers that he made to be creational pictures of his people, what do you think that means about the depths of his love for his true flock, for his human garden? 
And Jesus leads us to God's paternity, his fatherhood. You see, God isn't merely a deity that can be manipulated. He's a father who can be trusted. Jesus points us to the Gentiles, to the nations who worshipped other lesser man-made gods, and he reminds us that they're all striving after the same things we're anxious about. And how would the pagan nations around Israel strive? By tirelessly going to their gods of fertility and agriculture and wealth and whatever else they thought might fill up their life, and by controlling their god's response through a transactional process of sacrifice. I do my part for you. You give your blessing to me. All the nations are anxiously striving with their gods to secure their life. But Jesus says, you have a father who already knows your needs. You have a father to be trusted, not an idol to be controlled. And that is phenomenally good news for anxious people. An uncontrollable God may honestly seem like a liability at first, but even if you aren't sure, if you even believe in God, you should want that kind of God to be true. Why? Because you have to have an uncontrollable God to actually get free of your anxiety. As long as your God can be manipulated and controlled by your actions, efforts, and sacrifices, the burden is still squarely on your shoulders. You're still the one pulling all the strings. And it's still on you, ultimately, to secure and not fail in getting the life you're seeking. Only a God who is totally free who has no need you can satisfy, who is completely outside of your control, is big enough to lift the burden of your anxiety so that you can stop striving in fear and actually rest in someone else who's able to take care of you. You've got a heavenly father, not a divine puppet. But how do you really know that he can be trusted? That's the question, isn't it? How do you know he can be trusted? Because the king has already given up everything to give you the kingdom. That's how you know. In Israel's history, no king matched King Solomon. Solomon, son of David. That's why Jesus uses Solomon as an example here in this passage of splendor. King Solomon had everything anyone could ever dream of, and his kingdom abounded. Until he indulged in all that power selfishly. And his kingdom crumbled for all Israel. But in Jesus, church, as he will say in the Gospels, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus, too, is a son of David. From the royal line, he, too, is reigning over A kingdom. He even speaks like Solomon in this passage. Did you hear it? He's pointing to nature with wisdom like it's straight out of the book of Proverbs. But there's a key difference. Where Solomon clenched onto his glory and ultimately lost 
his kingdom. Jesus laid aside his glories to secure his kingdom for you. That is the simple, eternal message of the Christian faith. And it's the message that will be a salve for your anxious soul. Jesus lived in your place. He died for your sinful life-seeking. And he rose again to give you a kingdom whose riches can never be exhausted. Jesus willingly walked to his death so that he could be for you the bread of life. He thirsted on the cross to give you a seat at his eternal banquet and a goblet filled with covenant wine. He was stripped naked to clothe you in garments of glory. He was shamed to crown you with honor. He was mocked to secure your eternal approval. He was denigrated to purchase your exaltation. He gave himself into the unstable hands of wicked men so that he could place you in the secure hands of a trustworthy God. He went to death painfully alone so that you could have the presence of God now and forever. He offered over his health, his vitality, his very body so that he could raise up your body with health and vitality in glory. Everything you've ever striven for in your pursuit of true life, that's what Jesus gave up. Why? In order for you to receive it in full in his kingdom. He walked into all the places of loss that your deepest fears tremble to name. So that having everything, you might be troubled no more. And if that is the kind of king, if that is the kind of God that you belong to, the anxious burden can begin to lift off of your heart and you will find that you can truly breathe again. So Jesus says to us, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What's he saying? He's saying, take all that fear-fueled energy you were using, seeking to secure your life for yourself and channel it into seeking his kingdom, pressing into his kingdom, rehearsing the promise of his kingdom, enjoying the goodness of his kingdom, resting in all the blessings of his kingdom. And as you do that, seek after the righteousness of the kingdom. Take all the symptoms of your anxiety that infect your life and in the promise of the kingdom start to unwind them as your heart finds rest. Let your tight grip loosen in generosity. Let your diminished presence Focus in attentive love on the people before you. Train your dimmed eye to see and give thanks for all God's goodness to you. Where anxiety multiplied your conflicts, let a non-anxious heart infuse the kind of peace that comes from kingdom-grounded fearlessness. Press into the kingdom in faith. Live in the righteousness of the kingdom, 
that a non-anxious, gospel-saturated heart makes possible. And Jesus promises you'll be taken care of. How? How can he guarantee that? Well, in addition to possessing all the riches of the kingdom now, and in addition to receiving the abundance of the kingdom in full in the future, Jesus gives you a kingdom family right here and now, to take care of your needs. A community that is learning together how to rest in the kingdom and open ourselves in the righteousness that springs from non-anxious hearts will be attentive and responsive to the concrete needs among us. Remember, that's exactly what happened among the first Christians? In Acts 4, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Do you hear that? In a first century, ancient agrarian society, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's one of the beautiful, revolutionary ways that God adds all things to his children. He plants you in a family that is learning to embrace the kingdom, to let go of their own anxiety, and looking outward to take care of one another. So let's pray.